This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 6, Episode 4. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, brought to you by Mountain Men Medical. Part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of shows, and today is Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, as the recording of this episode. And I'm here with the head honcho in chief, Jacob Paulson, and I am also your host, Riley Bowman. Hello, hello, hello. Howdy, 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 howdy. Got to get that good old Wyoming howdy in there. (laughs) Guys, we're glad to be with you today. Uh, it's our second episode of the day. I did one earlier today with Matthew, uh, covering a lot of really important legislative, or well, it was kind of legislative, but industry news. Um, also, a couple of gear reviews. If you missed that episode, you can go go back and check that out. Uh, today, though, Jacob and I are going to be talking about how doing this one thing may reduce by almost as much as seventy percent your likelihood of getting shot in a deadly force encounter. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be an interesting topic of discussion, I think. I mean, we've kind of talked about this a little bit before and talked about it as part of other, I think, episodes in the past. Uh, but we're going to focus on a little, some more again to here today, I think is uh, relevant for our listeners to uh, pick up on. Uh, today's though, uh, episode is sponsored by CCW Safe. We're proud to be affiliated and associated with CCW Safe. Uh, proud to have them sponsor this podcast. Jacob, uh, why is it important to you that uh, that we're sponsored by CCW Safe? Hmm. So that's a good question. Put them on the spot. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a question of credibility. Um, I was talking to somebody in our industry about this yesterday. And it would de- derail the conversation for me to say who it was. So that, that's why I'm excluding that. But but uh, the person was talking about how important it is in their company and in their brand that they only be associated with the best, the best of everything. And um, I'm not as neurotic about that kind of a stance in life. But <clears throat> in the case of CCW Safe, we want to be associated with the best. And we feel that CCW Safe is the best. So we... We associate ourselves with with them because we think they have the best product. We think that they're the best uh, team relative to working with their members in some sort of crit- critical incident. And yeah, I, I don't know what to say. We think they're the best. Yeah. And the best in, in terms of being proven too with the whole Steve Maddox case and the fact that to our knowledge, at least my knowledge, uh, unless you've heard something differently, but I don't think there's another uh, self-defense coverage program out there that has been tested to the extent of a full on from start to finish to from arrest to uh, uh, acquittal or not guilty uh, verdict. Uh, yeah, I mean it's that's that's nice, right? I don't think it's a fair comparison since because that that is sort of, there's an opportunity bias, right? We don't know if other companies have had the opportunity to do so, but but at least like you said, we know that in this case we're talking about a company that's that's has been tested and they've they've been and, successful and they stood behind their member all throughout that, and that that I think is to me that's just so reassuring to know that hey, like if I've I have seen those questions occasionally come up from people of well how do I know they're really going to be back me up? And it's like, Steve Maddox, go look it up. Anyway, 
Check out CCW Safe today by going to ccwsafe.com. Check out their different pro plans or programs. You got the Ultimate Plan, which uh, I'm a member of, Jacob's a member of, and also uh, the Defender and Protector plans are also available, uh, which are great programs as well. Reduced cost, still have great coverage benefits. Check them out and use the discount code CCPODCAST to save 10%. Guardian Nation members save even more, 20%, in fact. Also, today's episode is sponsored by the 2022 Guardian Conference. We're excited to be there, and also CCW Safe is a title sponsor of that event, I should say. Uh, but we got a bunch of other great sponsors. In fact, I'm wearing one of their shirts here on uh, uh, today, and the, the hat is not associated. It just happens to be a hat through on, but... Guardian Conference, September 16th to the 18th. Uh, looking forward to that event. Three days of awesome training and association with some of the best people in the industry. Uh, and by that, I mean associating with many of you that will be there attending. I look forward to it. It's good to be amongst our tribe and also uh, to be associating with a bunch of the world, you know, top world-class instructors such as whom we will have there teaching for the, over the course of the three days. So it's going to be a great time, great opportunity. Guys, this I think is a huge value for getting some quality training uh, because over, I mean, for, for a very reasonable price, you're getting three days. And for some of you, if you get into the low light uh, blocks we'll be doing on Saturday night as well, really technically more than three days of amazing training covering a diverse array of topics all the way from law to hand-to-hand self-defense combatives to shooting to managing unknown contacts etc 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 i mean a bunch of different disciplines will be covered over the course of the three days there's not many opportunities like that so i hope you'll take advantage of this opportunity and come see us in oklahoma city in september again september 16th to the 18th should be good weather, should be a great time, and we're, we're going to ha- have a, a wonderful, safe training opportunity there. Learn more at guardianconference.com and get signed up today. So, today's episode topic, doing this one thing may reduce up to 70% your likelihood of getting shot in a self-defense type encounter. We're going to use as inspiration for this uh, episode, actually, an article uh, by our friend Greg Elfritz over at ActiveResponseTraining.net. The title of the article is Stand, Move, or Seek Cover. What works in a gunfight? He he actually did this. In fact, I think this was originally published somewhere else in in like uh, Police One or something like that years prior to him actually republishing it on his own site. Uh, and I, I, I know that cause I saw him talk about that in another post somewhere. Um, but this is, uh, this is great. He actually did this, uh, experiment, if you will, at the, uh, tactical defense Institute TDI, which is, uh, John Farnham's old, uh, 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 training school in Southern Ohio. Okay. Or, or excuse me, uh, yeah, John Farnham, I know. John Benner is involved there as well. Um, so what they did here is in this course, they had these students that were participating, and they wanted to see, okay, what happens with marking cartridges, so simunitions, what happens when we put 
you know, two opponents against each other, a good, a supposed good guy, if you will, and a supposed bad guy. And we're, let's measure hit rate of a situation where both people are standing still five yards apart and they're given a cue to begin the fight or whatever, and they just both draw and shoot at each other. Okay. So if we're both standing still, we both draw five yards away. What's the hit rate? Okay. Then they repeat it again where let's say if you have your good guy and he, or did they do it with both Jacob where they both are moving? They're both moving. They're both moving. That's right. So they're basically the both uh, individuals are given permission to move at this point. Uh, So forward, back, lateral, side to side, whatever. Exactly. So, all right. Repeat again, start at five yards, but on the queue, begin and start moving and shooting. Okay. What's the hit rate of that? And then the third phase is actually what uh, what Greg refers to it as here is where uh, we use cover. And what is the hit rate uh, when we use cover properly, especially. But to be clear, they didn't start out behind cover. So the, on the, right. the, third, the third variation of the experiment, they're close to some barrels, to some cover, and they're given the command with the instructions to move to cover. I'm going to have to quiet down some kids outside. I don't know if you're picking that up. Um, and I, I apologize. misspoke about, uh, I want to make sure I clarified. Uh, I know that they both think came out of the same area and the names were very similar, but we got uh, John Farnham who was defense Ta- training international and John Benner uh, with the TDI uh Anyway, I just want to make sure that that distinction was made clear. So we did that. We, we did this training, uh, Greg Gellifritz with John Benner, his class at TDI. And the, the results are pretty interesting from that. Now, I know, again, this is not a, a for sure vetted, um, you know, scientifically valid study of any kind. But I think the data is pretty good, at least gives us an idea and that's really, I think, what it's about is like it gives us a, a pretty rough idea of what to expect. And I'll also say I know that there's some other similar type things out there um, where people have done similar kind of studies, if you will, or experiments that, that aren't all that different. And I'm also, uh, I can think of another Greg Alfred's article where they did something similar, but I think in that one it wasn't a shooter against shooter. I think it was just merely testing what happened with uh, different types of movement where I think one was you had a, uh, a shooter and an opponent who just starts running straight away. Or I think they did one where it was moving more laterally. And I think they did one where the person like zigzags and they gathered some data from that. And I think what was gathered in that experiment also is validated somewhat by this experiment, especially when we look at the, the uh, difference in movement um, versus non-movement. So, Yeah, before we give the punchline with the results from, from Greg's you know, impromptu experiment here, well, I shouldn't say impromptu, from his experiment, I think there's a couple important things to note here. One, one is that I think the, the really important premise of this article, other than you know what we're going to learn about use of cover and movement, is that we need data to support what sometimes seems like a logical hypothesis. So you might think, oh, well, if I'm moving, I'm hard to hit. 
you know, so that in theory, you know, movement then reduces, you know, my odds of being shot and increases my survivability. That seems logical, right? But, but have we ever challenged that belief? And that's at the core of what Greg was doing here. He said, wait a minute, like I've never, in his words, he says something like, I've never, I've never seen any data to actually support what is held as a effectively a logical conclusion. But, but, you know, oftentimes we find out logical conclusions are, do, are not true, right? Mm-hmm. That we're making assumptions that turn out to be invalid. And so I think that it's important for us to, as we go through this, put it into context that there might be other things in our industry that we assume are true, that we teach and train students to do, or that we, we do as professionals, because it just seems obvious. We're like, yeah, of course, this is what you would do. This is what we've always done. But until you test it against a hypothesis and, and come up with some sort of data, you don't really know. And, and and I think that that's a valid kind of perspective here as we as we go into this and look at this. And you met, you said this wasn't maybe the most scientific you know study or whatever, but but it's what we got is the kind of takeaway is that no one else has taken a, a real good look at this in terms of giving us any tangible data. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, I think, is relevant to this study before we get to the the details or the results, is that these marker rounds, these simulations that are being used, they they do hurt. When you get shot with them, uh, it's it's not the kind of thing where you know you're just like oh 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 yep yep there's some pain on me I guess I got hit like it, it's pain and and that that matters because most people <laughs> um, don't want to be shot with them and that adds a certain degree of like stress like oh this like it, it it's like the first time you've ever you ever played paintball I don't know like if you're listening to me and you remember if you've ever played paintball if you can think back to the first time you pay, pay, played paintball there's a certain amount of like fear of getting shot with these paintballs it's like that looks like it's going to hurt you, know, you see the size of that thing you see how fast they fly together it's like I don't want to get hit by that and this is a, this is a similar kind of thing I think if you shot if you played with simulations a lot eventually you probably build up certain tolerance to it but um, in this context, that was not the case. And so these people probably were doing a certain amount of stress. Like, <laughs> I do not want to get shot with that thing. I would, not to mention I'm, I'm performing in front of my peers. The, this, you know, There's a study being done. They're keeping track of all the data. I don't want to look like an idiot. So I think that there's just a, a stress factor that's relevant here. Is it the same as like life and death, defensive gunfire? Probably not. But but it's not it's not like a controlled experiment with a bunch of boring people like, okay, I will stand here and you know, like these are shooters. And that's the other thing I wanted to, to mention before you get to the results, Riley, the yeah. people who, uh, who were in this study, who were selected to, to participate in this little experiment, I think is the best word to be used. Um, were relatively, um, relatively highly trained armed citizens. They'd been through a series of other defensive handgun courses and this experiment was conducted during the middle of kind of a, a culminating course uh, that, that in order to attend, you had to have gone through a bunch of these other things. So these people had 10 plus days or something of, of defensive handgun training in order to get to this class. Yep. Yeah. So they're, in fact, uh, Greg even mentions how uh, each of these participants had extensively practiced shooting on the move. I'm quoting from the article with most being able to hit a 12 inch steel plate on demand any distance inside of 50 feet while moving. Uh, similarly, these students are adept at hitting a moving target while standing still. So, uh, and, and they said, and he said here, and he's explaining the difference between 
the standing phase and the moving phase of the experiment that the critical factor seemed to be the difficulty the shooter experienced in hitting a moving target while moving his own body at the same time. So yeah, the, just making the point that like these are relatively skilled shooters, like having trained a, a few shooters over the years, if you can on demand hit a 12 inch steel plate, any distance inside of 50 feet while moving, you're, you're a pretty good shot. Okay, so these are skilled shooters. So results are going to vary depending on level of experience and likely are going to be much, much worse in terms of hit rate with a lesser skilled shooter uh, would be my observation I would make here based on on these statements alone. Now, I did, uh, it took me a minute. I, I, I meant to look it up before we began uh, recording the episode, but I spaced it. And so since I mentioned it, the uh, article that Greg uh, references uh, some, you know, movement as well as it relates to uh, hit rates. It's titled "Don't Run in a Straight Line and Other Bad Advice." Uh, and, and again, testing, you know, the the uh, results of just running straight versus uh, zigzagging. Oh, I got it wrong. It was uh, one there, just kind of running straight away. The other one is uh, running in a crouch. And then the final thing they tested was running in a zigzag. And I'll cover what those results are here in just a moment as well, just to um, compare with what the results of this other experiment were. So we'll go ahead and uh, mention these. And, and, and I appreciate, by the way, Jacob, you mentioning, like, even though that we would make these logical conclusions just through critical thought of, well, yeah, duh, we're not going to get as many hits on target when we're moving or using cover versus when we're standing still. But I think it's a very relevant question to ask how much of a reduction in say personal risk. Like if we're, if we're approaching it from our angle, our standpoint or point of view as a, as a uh, concealed carrier, a law abiding citizen that might need to use a gun to justify deadly force and thinking about our own likelihood of prevailing in an encounter how much of a reduction might be expected, right? That's a very, very relevant question to ask. So here are some of the statistics. And these initial t- statistics, I think, are like, I think they're pretty good. But there's, uh, there's a bit of a plot twist uh, that we'll share secondarily to this. I think is really, I think is really the crux of the, of the matter, frankly. Uh, and that has to do with what types of hits. But first, <clears throat> uh, you should know that, by the way, the participants in each of these uh, experiments that they ran, they ran them dozens and dozens and dozens of times to try to get a, a pretty decent pool of data. Each of the participants were given two rounds, okay? And they were they were doing this with simunitions fired out of revolvers, just so you know. So they had two rounds. So these scenarios are going to be relatively short and quick, uh, I was really just testing a simple concept. In the phase number one, the standing phase. So in other words, you got your two opponents, both five feet apart or five yards apart, both shooting at each other. The hit rate was 85%. Okay. One might look at that even and go like, well, why isn't it even better than that? Like five yard shots, like that's not that difficult. But keep in mind that the pressure component of this, that, uh, even in a simulated event like this, where there is a pain penalty involved, where you know if you get hit, it's going to sting pretty good, and you really don't want to get hit, you still want to be first, because you know that if you get 
around on your opponent first, it's going to affect or influence his or her ability to perform. Right. And so I, I, I want to win. I want to be the first to get a hit on target. So I suspect that there are some misses that occurred because people either were, were going a little faster than they probably should have been right from the get go, trying to get that first hit on target. And there may have been some misses based on the fact that the second person to fire had been struck and it may have altered their ability to perform and follow through and get a good hit on target, but still 85% hit rate in the standing phase. I, I think that there's some context here that might be valid mm-hmm. before we keep going. Yeah. Hit rate is, is something that's just kind of interesting to point out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a ton of data in this country on hit rate in armed civilian shootings. Like we don't know, yeah. like in, in the average defensive encounter, you know, how well does the criminal or the civilian defender fare and hit rate? Like we don't, I have no idea, <laughs> but we, we do have some data on law enforcement uh, from s- some departments uh, that, that report that or, or from the department of justice that collects that information. And it, I'll admit that it's been some time, you know, a couple of years probably since I reviewed that data, but also uh, I'm shooting from the hip and I'm, I'm not going to provide a source for this, but my arbitrary, if you trust it, memory is that, Law enforcement hit rates in this country are are below fifty percent. Uh, on average, there I think if my, what I remember something like 44, 45, 46 percent, something like that, uh, on average for the country. And some agencies performing significantly less than that, and some better than that. Um, but but I just want to throw in context that you know law enforcement on average is not hitting stuff fifty percent of the time. Now again, that's that's all circumstances together, despite standing, cover, moving, et cetera. But I just wanted to give you some sort of, like you might think of that like a baseline for the, in context. As we're going through and talking about this experiment, you might consider a 45% hit rate as maybe a baseline. If, if, if my memory serves me right, that's like the average law enforcement hit rate. I, yeah, I think it depends on the source of the reported data uh for instance like there's a famous statistic that's quoted out of uh nypd from years ago that where the hit rate was like an atrocious like 17 between or 11 and 20 percent <laughs> you know is yeah, yeah something like that i've really, seen that really, data really as well low. yeah yeah so yeah um the point is is that uh hits in a so-called gunfight even by our men and women in blue is not particularly high, at least as high as what we'd like it to be. And there's some other data. I I think there's some stuff we can find from force science Institute. Um, Also, I know that our buddy, I should say our buddy, I don't know how well you know him. I kind of know him uh, somewhat Jake Jackson over at tier three tactical. Um, uh, You know, he's actually talked about some similar things as well. I know he's covered in a couple of his articles, uh, some different hit rate type things. Now, let's be clear. Hit rate, I believe, was recorded hit anywhere on the other individual. Um, so 85% hit rate in the standing phase. Going to moving phase, where both opponents were free to move as soon as the signal was given. Uh, the, the hit rate was 47%. So when both are moving, 47%. So not quite, but almost 50% reduction from 85% down to 47% hit rate. Just when we introduce the variable of both parties may freely move, which is probably 
not all that uncommon in face-to-face, you know, we're talking not necessarily arm's length, right? But but like face-to-face encounters between two individuals with guns, generally people don't stand still, at least for very long. So that's probably more realistic in, in a lot of incidents. Uh, so moving phase, 47% hit rate. And then as soon as we move to using cover, and again, in this instance, the context is they started, and it says here in the article, about a step away from one of two 55-gallon steel drums. So so you got two steel drums, opponent one, opponent two. They each have one. They're about a step away on the signal. Uh, they mo- can, may move to cover, use it for cover while engaging uh, their, their opponent with their, their two available shots. So in that instance, we had a hit rate of 26%. So right there alone, we go from 85 down to 26%. That's pretty substantial. But here's really the, the crux of the matter here, because hit rate's one thing, right? Like that could be got hit in the hand, got hit in the leg, who knows, got hit in the big toe, which obviously in any sort of gunfight or deadly force encounter, we don't want to get hit anywhere. Nobody wants to get hurt at all. And obviously getting struck by a bullet. Any, you know, at any point is potentially altering to the success or the outcome of the of the incident. I mean, even taking it around to your hand could influence your ability to continue to use your gun, and that might cause you to lose a fight, even if you're not lethally wounded, at least from that initial uh, hit, right? So, so it's important to kind of, I guess keep things kind of in context that way. But this again is a hit a hit anywhere on body, and that's recorded, and these are the hit rates that were received. But here is what I think was really telling, and that's when we start looking at good, solid torso hits. And so Greg recorded that information as well. And this is actually where the 70% number that I gave at the beginning really comes from, because those are the hits that are likely likely to produce an undesirable outcome. Assuming it occurs to you, as our our buddy John Korea is known for talking about on his own show uh, about, you know, the importance of he or she who gets the first good hit and the meaty bits of the other person is usually the the winner or the, the person that, you know, comes out the other side of that event, right? Whoever typically gets the first hit in the meaty bits or the good, you know, he, by that he's talking about good high center ch- uh, uh, center mass of the or the center of the chest of the body typically is who prevails in the incident. Okay, so standing torso hits fifty one percent. So we know right away that you know each person's firing two rounds. One of two from both sides is going to hit in torso. One of those is not somewhere else apparently. Here's the interesting thing. As soon as we start moving, we go from a 51% torso hit rate down to 11%. That's a lot. That's a big, big, big change. That was the thing that really like made me go, wow. Like that, that's substantial. That is that's game changing. Like that alone, it's one thing when you're like, well, should I just stand and shoot this guy or should I move and shoot this guy? And if we're just concerned about hit rate alone. It's like 85, 47%, 
eh, okay, I'll take, you know, 47%. It's definitely better. But 51% compared to 11%, 11% is way better. Like in one case, we're 51% likely to have a probably life-threatening, you know, very much a life-threatening injury or likely to be like, you know, like result in my death injury. But we go to moving and and all of a sudden, one in 10 might be in my in my torso. And then finally, and that's one of 10 of the shots that are fired. Yeah, out of all and, shots and fired. Given a 47% hit rate, that actually means that for every 10 shots fired, it's more like half of one would be a torso yeah, hit. Exactly. So 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 the moving and the result resulting uh, torso hit percentage is is significant. That's that's a big 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 improvement. So point is at the very least, we want to be moving if we got to use our gun and, and, and defense, okay, versus just standing still. Now, number three, using cover. When we go, when we are able to use cover, the resulting torso hit percentage is down to six percent. Keep in mind that it's a twenty percent six percent hit rate. Um, using cover of just anywhere, but it's only 6% in the torso. So that's, that's substantial. Now, I don't know that they recorded or, or how they approached uh, head hits, hits in the head with respect to all of this. Um, I don't even remember if he mentioned anything about that. No, it doesn't. But, uh, it doesn't I'm sure some people would be like, well, what about that? You know, like that should be counted. Uh, and when we're using cover, it becomes probably more likely that if we are hit, you know, what's most likely to be exposed is probably our head to some extent. So that, that's, that's relevant to know. But, but the point here is, is as soon as we start using cover, it's a substantial reduction from anything else from getting hit in, in a, in a, in a vital place, in a vital location. So that's, that's pretty big, uh, information to have. So when we answer the question, how much of a difference does it make to move or how much of a difference does it make to take cover? It's a big difference. And therefore it just reinforces and revalidates the age old adage. I mean, a couple things of one, get off the X, right? Like this, this old thing that we've heard said for, for many, many years. And number two, like if I have cover and I can use it by golly, I better use it because that's, it's a big, big, big improvement in my survivability. Yeah, I, I have one like clarifying thought on the statistics, and then I have some other important things. But I think it's worth clarifying. So we talked about these three phases of the experiment, standing, movement, and getting to cover, and how the hit rate decreases, but simultaneously the percentage of the hits that are in the torso also decrease. So it's a cascading, you know, massively decreasing likelihood that you're going to take a torso hit as you go from standing to moving to using cover. Um, but I think, I think there's a, a relevant thing here. There was an, uh, a problem with the experiment. It might, I would call it a problem. You know, Greg doesn't say that in his article, but he says, this is, I'm, we're going to quote from the article for a second. He says the following. It is also clear that when students used cover, they fared even better than they did while moving. We already knew that, right? Okay. Continue the quote the hit rates would be far less than reported if several students didn't break cover and retreat after running out of ammunition during the drill. Most of the hits occurred when this happened. Proper use of cover almost eliminated the chance of being hit. 
So we we reported a 26% hit rate when when these people were using cover, but he's saying that the majority of, of the hits when people were using cover happened when they when the the person being shot broke cover and ran off. And they did this primarily because they only had two rounds. They ran out of ammo and not having other instructions probably for the exercise. They thought, I guess I'd better run. So they started running and that's when they got shot. So so the point is that you know, 26% is actually uh the reported number of 26% is probably way overestimated that if people had not broken cover, if they had not ran off, then if they had stayed behind cover, then, you know, effectively it would have reduced it to nothing that the odds of these people getting shot were, were literally, you know, zero. Now <clears throat> we don't know because that's not how the experiment was conducted. They, they didn't have unlimited ammunition. They had two rounds, but I think that's an important contextual piece here relative to the statistics uh, that, that is noteworthy. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's, I, I picked up on that as well. And it's a very, very solid, very valid point. Um, and again, a simple experiment is just a simple experiment. So yeah, to those that would, uh, uh, fault the, this experiment because of, you know, things like this or something else entirely, or like not counting head hits or Go et cetera, conduct et your own research. Yeah. Like it, it, it's, yeah, it's it, honestly you can find stuff like that with just about any study that you do because by nature studies need to have a certain set of controlled variables because that's what you're trying to measure, right? And there may be things outside of that, and that's why context is important. I did want to go back to really quick um, his other article, you know, titled about uh, not running in a straight line. And uh, well, I I got a, a quick opinion that I want to clarify then. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go there. Yep. Yep. I think it's really interesting because as we went through these numbers, you made the comment, Riley, something defective. Oh, yeah, look how much it reduces the odds of getting shot or by getting shot in the torso if you're moving or if you get to cover. So that, you know, therefore, we would seem to justify the age-old training we've been doing of teaching people to to move and to get off the X and to uh, move and shoot. <clears throat> but I think there's a flip side to this, which is this is also true then of, of the person you're shooting at. Right, if they're moving, then they just became significantly more difficult for you to shoot. If they get to cover, then they just became significantly more difficult for you to shoot. Um, and and so I think that we have to think of this on, on in both sides of the coin, right? Like, yes, this means that me standing still is bad, but also means that if my target's moving, that's bad for me. And if it means my target moves to cover, that's also bad for me. Mm-hmm. So. So it, it goes both ways, and I think that context matters. And mm-hmm. and there's a I don't know if I can find the quote here in the article, but it basically talks about how traditionally in the defensive gun industry, and I think this is true. I I, I would you know based on my experience believe this to be true, that we teach people to move and shoot, and we teach people to shoot at moving targets, but we don't teach people to move and shoot at moving targets. Right. So there's generally the way we train, like one of the elements is holding still. Either the shooter's holding still and we're dealing with some sort of moving target, or the target is holding still and we're moving, uh, you know, in some sort of form relative to the target. But, but how often do we train a situation where we're moving and the target's moving? That, that makes it really hard to get shots. <clears throat> and I think that's the relevant thing here. And so I think that, I guess where I'm going with this is that there's a question here that I think is not addressed. In this article, and maybe it will be a perfect segue to, to the other one, or, or maybe Riley, you'll just have a comment. Mm-hmm. But the segue is, or the, the the question that needs to be asked is, in the case of cover, you know, move and then shoot, or move while shooting. 
Because if we know that we're harder to hit when we're moving, then let's move. But if we also know it's hard to hit stuff while we're while we're moving, especially if our target's also moving, then does it make sense to get to cover as quickly as we can, not doing any shooting, and then work on returning fire from that position? Or does it make sense to fire while moving? That is uh, that's that's a really meaty question. It's meaty because there's so much that depends on individualized context or circumstances of a, of a particular event, right? Like, I mean, there, there's just so many things that need to be considered. Number one, um, if our own accountability for hits is substantially increased, meaning that like the um, consequences for missed hits is increased, meaning that if I miss my target, then the, there's, there's a, an apparent, uh, or reasonable belief that that missed round has a high probability of hurting somebody else, then I probably don't want to be shooting while moving. Right. And so, um, that may not always be easy to like, obviously we can assume any missed shot. There's a pro there's a potential for it to, to hurt an innocent party. We never want to miss. Uh, so that that's important to think your way through, uh, that particular thought process. Uh, also, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's probably, honestly, that's like the first thing that came to my mind was just thinking in terms of, uh, how important is it? I must land hits on target and that the failure, it will dictate, uh, whether I choose to move and get to cover and then shoot or, if it would be acceptable or appropriate for me to shoot while moving towards cover. I'd say in a lot of contexts, there's something to be said about trying to get rounds on target as soon as possible, because the sooner I do that, the sooner I alter the potential out potential outcome of that event. Right. Because if I don't get until I get rounds on target, my threats probably going to just continue doing what they're doing. Right. So all that needs to be weighed and factor in based on the unique circumstances of a particular event. So it's hard to give a for sure answer one way or another. But what I think is 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 clear is that is the importance of being able to uh, uh, critically think in the moment and make this make appropriate decisions and to weigh those factors of how important is it I land rounds on target right now versus how critical is it that every single one of those rounds connects uh, and and reduce, like how important is that I reduce the potential for missed rounds to hit, hit an innocent party? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a simple question, but I do think yeah. it's extremely relevant to this discussion when we're, when we're talking about the difference between standing still movement or moving to cover. Uh, yeah. it, it becomes really relevant because we don't get a lot of opportunities to train you know, us moving and target moving. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. A very, yeah. That's why I think it's, it's good for folks to take the information we've given thus far and to ponder on this, to think on, to think, to think through this particular conundrum, if you will, and um, come up with your own answers in that regard. 
Referencing the other study, if you will, or experiment that Greg Elifritz did, this one they tested moving in a straight line versus moving at a crouch versus zigzagging. Uh, I'm not going to get as far into the weeds on this particular one because we're, we're focused on the on the article that brought us here in the first place. But I think this just provides some additional food for thought and also some some measure of validation of of the first experiment that we just talked about. So in the in this other experiment, they uh, they had uh, where they essentially had a very similar starting point, if you will. It's sort of like you have two opponents, but in this case, one opponent is not shooting back. In fact, they don't even have a gun at all, uh, a simunitions gun or anything like that on them at all. Their whole focus is at a particular. Actually, they, they if I recall, they are actually initiating the starting point of this uh, experiment. So. They're facing off, I think it started at about five yards again, where they're basically right there. And the cue to the shooter of when to be, you know, when they have permission to begin drawing and shooting their gun is when they see the other person start to move. So uh, they did it where the person moving just turns and runs in a straight line. And uh, in this case, 47% of shots fired were center mass or head hits. So, curiously, now keep in mind, this is just one party is moving. The shooter is always stationary in this other experiment. Okay. Curiously, hit, the hit rate when both parties are moving in our first experiment was 47%. The hit rate with this experiment where the shooter is, stand, is stationary, but the other party is simply focused on moving as fast as they can away in a straight line is 47%. And I think it was kind of a diagonal movement, just so you know, it's not, they, I don't think they were just moving straight back. I think they had the option, but I think from the, there's some videos here we can actually, that are on YouTube, you can watch. Uh, it appears that they're kind of moving at a diagonal. Uh, uh, so somewhat straight, somewhat lateral. Uh, 47% hit rate. So it's pretty much the same number as the other experiment. Then they tested moving in a crouch. So the idea of, well, make myself a smaller target. And the center mass or head hit percentage in that test was 50%. The idea here being that in a crouch, yeah, you're a smaller target, but you're also moving slower because you can't move quite as fast in a crouch as you can just running naturally. Um, and then they tested moving in a zigzag. And actually, um, this one had about the same overall percentage of hits as the other two options. But in the case of center mass or head hits was the most reduced. And it was actually 36% of those hits were in critical areas, if you will, when the person was zigzagging. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. So like some of us might think, be inclined to read that and be like, oh, so when I run away from a threat, I should run in a zigzag. But not quite so fast, all right? Don't, don't be going there with your logic so quickly because Greg provides some other context and talks about how in the crouched movement and in the zigzag movement, the, 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 uh, the runner had uh, took more time to cover the same amount of distance, right? It took them, they couldn't move as fast. So in, in the crouched and zigzag experiments or tests, uh, the shooter could actually expend all of their rounds that they had available. And so that resulted in, gre in a greater number of opportunities to land hits on the target. 
Whereas in the case where they just purely turned and ran in, in a, in as fast as they could in a straight line, it, I think it was in uh, uh, 25% of the test runs, the shooters weren't able to fire a second round. They were given two rounds in this test, just like in the other test or experiment. So 25% of the time, the shooter could only get off one round when the person just turned and ran in a straight line. So, so hit rate may drop, but total number of hits does not necessarily. Yeah. And I, I think Greg's takeaway from this and he talks about it is that, that there's something to be said about giving the other party fewer opportunities to land hits on you. And that, 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 that kind of carries its own weight to a degree. So something, something to consider if we're weigh, if we're uh, weighing that uh, zigzagging movement versus the just running in a straight line sort of thing, uh, my personal feeling is that uh, just getting out of there as fast as possible, I just that just feels the intuitively best choice. Now I know intuition is not always the most accurate thing. That's why we do these experiments. That's why we have the data. Um, but that just you know, the the faster I can put distance between me and my adversary, I, I think that is a wise thing to do. Um, also says here, he talks about other factors, how like zigzagging shouldn't be considered by people who have knee problems or other joint issues because they may not be able to be as effective as at making those directional changes and so forth. So, uh, and then he re reemphasizes the importance of speed. And again, if we're just running a straight line, speed is is a good thing is, 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 is a, is a benefit of that. So anyway, just some other food for thought, but I thought that that other experiment kind of validates some of the data that we got from this first experiment. We talked about, um, to a degree, it shows that this, this 85%, 47%, 26%, uh, rates, uh, overall hit rates, probably not that far off. Uh, you know, we have now multiple things we can point to, uh, the torso hits a little bit trickier, I think, to draw some conclusions potentially there, but, uh, good to know. Now I wanted to come back to what you said earlier, Jacob, about how a lot of times when we practice shooting while moving or shooting with movement involved, that oftentimes one of the two sides of that coin are stationary, either the target stationary or the shooter stationary. And I, I would say that I agree that that is what we tend to see, uh, more often than not. But I was going to provide uh, my own response to that, and that is that uh, there is a there is at least one. I want to be careful saying this this way. Uh, category of training, if you will, although I don't necessarily always consider it training, um, but some people might think of it that way. But there's one category of shooting where we can actually have opportunities to shoot moving targets while we ourselves move now. That doesn't mean that the individual will always choose to shoot those moving targets while moving. But if you wanted to practice that, you at least have that opportunity. And any civilian has this opportunity. And that is competitive shooting. Well, you know, we should not neglect force on force either, which is how this experiment well, I, was conducted. I, I plan to come back to that as well. But Okay. Uh, I wanted to touch on more like the square range kind of training environments, sure. if you will, where like, you know, it's more of uh, just me and, and some paper targets, essentially. Right. So so the, the the easy answer there to get 
more experience with shooting moving targets, including if I want myself also moving as an additional test would be to do that is to go out to shooting matches where that's, that's a thing. And, and uh, both USPSA and IDPA will have stages where that's, uh, that's an opportunity a lot of times to get, let me ask a question. Yeah. Not being a competitive shooter myself, Mm -hmm. having only ever attended, you know, small, very small number of matches. I've never seen a competitive shooter move while shooting a moving target. Oh, I have. Okay. But it certainly can't be the, the go-to most common practice to ensure hits. Uh, I, I Again, I think context is important there. Now, I would say that, the, that it is the exception rather than the rule of, of what you're saying. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but I have engaged moving targets while on the move. Uh, now, usually we don't see, I'm not talking like you're, you're moving at a full on, you know, run or, or a fast paced walk even while doing that a lot of times. But where I've seen this done and where I've done it myself is where you, maybe you engage an activator for like, say a swinger, uh, or even like a, a drop turning target, which isn't maybe a, the, the best movement movement target, but it is, it is a type of moving target. Um, I've I've done it where either the swing of that or even either that swinging target is at a distance where I feel comfortable doing that, uh, or maybe the swing of the spe- swinging speed of that target is maybe a little bit slower than it usually or commonly is, where I might hit that activator and start moving, and then hit that moving target. Um, yeah, it, it's not common, but it is. Uh, I've seen it done and I've, I've done it uh, maybe twice, you know, over the last couple of years. Now, again, you can choose to do it that way though. That's, well, that's kind that, of the point. That's my point. Yeah. That, like, that is the point is that in a defensive encounter, you also have a choice. And I think that's the other half of this point. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the more practice you get, the more you have a sense for your capabilities and the average capabilities yeah. of the other shooter. Yep. Now there was one stage I saw once at a three gun match that actually involved um, a uh, like a tooler drill target, and so you hit an activator, and which I think was done. I think it, I think it was done with your foot, or no, no. It's it, it's excuse me. It started randomly. It was initiated by the uh, RO, uh, the range officer, uh, and you, that was actually your cue to start. So like you're just standing there at the ready and all of a sudden, boom, and this target just starts moving at you at a very high rate of speed. And you have, you know, basically less than two seconds to draw and put two hits on that target before uh, I've seen those targets before. And when they hit the end of the track, they actually stop and then they lay down. So like, like you literally have no other chance to hit them anymore. Cause they're, they're just gone. They, they disappear. That was actually kind of cool. And you had the option and I, I saw some people take that target on the move a little bit, sort of simulating the uh, whole tool or drill type idea of guys rushing at me. I'm going to draw and start taking side steps as I shoot it. So that was kind of cool to see it used in that context in that particular match. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So back to the other way to really get good practice with this kind of thing. You brought up force on force. So I would, yeah, that would seem like the more, I guess it seemed like the more obvious one to me. Um, it's, it's more organic for sure. And I think, I think I'll also just, 
uh, take some liberty to expand the definition of force on force. Because I think when we when is in the, within the industry when we talk about force on force, I think we're generally talking about a controlled environment with a fireman instructor um, and you know airsoft guns or maybe they're you know simunition UTM whatever kind of thing and we and we provide a scenario. You know, oh, you're you know you're walking down the street and you see what happens or you know whatever, <clears throat> and and certainly that's, that's probably most common. But but I I also think that there's some value to more broad in this in this context a more broad definition of force on force, um, and and by that I mean like even just the straight up sports uh, mm-hmm. that are in, that are included here. Like airsoft is a sport, right? You can go to facilities where you play airsoft. Uh, and this is a popular thing among among you know kids especially. And and I mentioned paintball earlier, and we could argue that there's there's value in playing paintball relative to these concepts um, of of not getting hit and understanding movement and taking cover and returning fire from cover, and uh, and those kinds of things. They certainly I think are have value in stress inoculation. A lot of the skills may not translate. You know, operating a paintball gun, for example, does not translate. Translate, and it does tend to get, make you feel like you have unlimited ammo compared to a, you know a real defensive handgun. So I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to overstep my bounds completely. Mm-hmm. But I do think that yeah, force on force, generally speaking, and I'm using a broad definition in this context, uh, does go a long way to give you the opportunity to practice moving while shooting and dealing with moving targets, human moving targets. To, People who are not just swinging on a swivel, you know, like like a moving target would be set up in a in a match. But people who make human decisions that are unpredictable and stuff, uh, and and so force on force is good. I think it's good. You know, in a controlled environment, it's great. But I also think some of the sporting uh, versions of force on force that are gaming, uh, like airsoft and paintball, also have their place in in this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in the pure uh, like development of skill, I think you're you're correct in that absolutely. Uh, so th- that's where we have to always be careful to, uh, like we have to make sure we s- keep separated uh, uh, tactics from performance skill. And I look at it the same way with competitive shooting. Uh, that competitive shooting teaches you performance skill. Uh, but not necessarily tactics, right? And, and so those are two, I think, distinct. Um, areas or disciplines within, you know, the the context of what we're discussing here, and I think uh, uh, airsoft, uh, you know, battles or paintball battles or whatever would be would I'd I'd, I'd say is is in a similar vein, uh, more of a it would allow me to develop and test some of those performance skills related to hitting my target and doing it while moving while they're moving, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the tactical, oh, and there and there may be some tactics that can be certainly explored. And learned, although I frequently see uh, video examples of airsofters in particular um, doing things that you would never do if if truly the stakes were death. Sure. Uh, you know, sure. so, um, but I do think that uh, well scripted, well, uh, well designed force on force uh, specific training done by qualified individuals uh, can, can give you, you know, both of that to it. Uh, a pretty effective extent where you, you're learning both valid and appropriate uh, uh, tactics and techniques, um, but also testing your performance skill as well. So now that's a challenge that not everybody has the opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, participate r- at least regularly uh, in uh, force on force training. Uh, the opportunities are fewer and far in between than stand other standard pistol shooting courses 
And also, I'd be really cautious with who you take those force on force uh, uh, courses from because not everybody is as skilled, I think, in running those in an effective manner uh, where the lessons learned are, um, you know, what they need to be. So, uh, you know, I will throw out a couple of names here just to give folks some some thoughts here. Um, you know, we've been really impressed with what we've seen from our friends at UTM and Tony Lambrea over there and his crew, and they certify now instructors as well to run force on force classes. Uh, I think they do a pretty, pretty good job. I also want to mention some pretty good, well-known, reputable industry folks like Craig Douglas at ShivWorks with his ECQC courses. Also, I know Greg Elifritz has done force on force courses and also, uh, um, I believe uh, Cecil Birch would be another good example as well with the media action combatives. I know has been spoken highly of with respect to the force on force uh, training that he does too. So um, you and I have, have done a little of that ourselves, Jacob, uh, not as much as of, as of recently, but those are great valuable lessons for, for people to learn. And I strongly encourage anyone listening to the podcast, if you can find it and seek it out uh, and get into a force on force class, Highly recommended. I have one more little caveat that probably is out of order here that should have been mentioned earlier, but but I think it's important. I, I think that one of the dangers of this converse, these conversations about cover is that you can you can reduce your hit rate down to zero by just hiding behind a big object, <laughs> right? Like if I just hide, mm-hmm. um, you can't hit me, mm-hmm. right? Like but the, but the problem with hiding, and I use the word hiding because I think, I when I say use using cover, mm-hmm. in my mind that that is protecting myself while returning fire, whereas hiding is just protecting myself without returning fire, and so I just want to add that that when you talk about these things and you hear these statistics in this study. Uh, about things like, well, here's what happens if you're just standing still. Here's what happens if you're moving. And here's what happens if you get to uh, cover. In the context of the study, people only had two shots. So it wasn't exactly an elongated you know, gun battle between mm-hmm. two people who were both behind cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but learning to use cover is important. And in many mm-hmm. ways, the proper use of cover is not intuitive. It yep. is it is very much so not what you're naturally inclined to do or believe would be effective. <clears throat> and so I just wanted to add that that yes, you know, proper use of cover effectively reduces hit rate down to almost nothing, in the words of Greg Elifritz, right? Mm-hmm. But um, effective use of cover is not just run and get behind something mm-hmm. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, then play whack-a-mole, you know, mm-hmm. take hooks and pot and mm-hmm. shots off into the distance. So yep. you keep that in mind for context as well, that a, yep. a good education in and and training and practice in proper use of cover is critical to success in this context that we're using. 100%. You know, and, and glad you mentioned that because I, I, I wanted to come around to that as well. As like we, we just talked about all the importance here of, of movement and especially of using cover when we're in kind of, you know, a, a shooting situation or scenario like this. Um, but then the other piece of that is, yes, the, the – well, how do we actually use that cover effectively? I mean, we many of us are probably familiar at least with the uh, uh, Dallas PD uh, incident a few years back. You know, they had that terrible uh, uh, active shooter situation. Uh, well publicized, an officer that lost his life that was involved in a shootout with that suspect uh, from a relatively short distance. Uh, he was behind cover, 
Okay. But one of the things there is like the proper use of that cover being unpredictable and also maintaining, like you got to know where your opponent is at all times. Cause then in that moment, the officer unfortunately became very predictable in his actions, uh, which permitted the uh, opponent, uh, the, the threat, once he recognized what was going on and that he could take advantage of that, allowed him to quickly then flank that officer. And that's ultimately what, what you know, primarily resulted in the loss of his life. So, uh, we, you know, we, we were very passionate about this subject and a few years ago uh, put together and filmed the training course Fighting from Cover, uh, which... You know, I'm quite proud of that, the work we did in that still. Uh, I think it was a great training course available at concealedcarry.com. Not a sponsor of this episode per se, but a reference certainly. I would encourage you all to to go and, and check that out if you haven't already. Uh, Guardian Nation members have access to it in the, in the members dashboard uh, video library, of course. But uh, yeah, get the Fighting From Cover uh, video course from us here at concealedcarry.com uh, and learn about proper use of cover. And we give a lot of, of great tips and and, and, you know, strategies, techniques, tactics, et cetera, how to practice it, how to train it, different scenarios involved with it, uh, and also particularly sh- shooting from unconventional uh, positions, which may become important or relevant as part of that proper use of cover. So I think a, a short link to that is concealedcarry.com forward slash FFC, I think. Sounds FFC for fighting from cover. Testing. Either way, we'll make sure it works because we can add that uh, short link pretty easily. Yeah, that's right. Facilitator.com forward slash FFC fighting from cover. There you go. So check it out. If you haven't already, I think it's a great resource to use. Finally, we got a question from Dave on YouTube asking, what about VR or virtual reality? Um, I I, I think there's probably some value that could be gained from that, but I'd say also the jury is out and I don't have a, a ton of experience with, with, legit VR programs um, that incorporate what we're talking about in, in it here today. So uh, I think there's some technology that's starting to come out that, that has the potential for uh, making some waves in that respect. But uh, I'd say uh, t- I don't have a strong opinion at the current time, not, not educated enough to speak about it this time. Um, but uh, can see that being more of a thing down the road for sure. Yeah, ditto. Cool. Well, I feel like uh, we did did well here discussing this, sub- this subject, this topic here today. Uh, folks, uh, learn how to shoot effectively while moving. Learn how to use cover effectively. Uh, learn how to hit moving targets, including while you're moving. All right. These are valid and relevant skills, sometimes difficult to develop, uh, but practice is key. And so I'd encourage you to, uh, to work on this stuff and to find opportunities and training opportunities and courses where you can do this. Heck, the Guardian Conference, which is sponsored this episode, probably have some coursework where some of this is involved. Uh, I don't know about for sure on Force on Force or not, but uh, for sure it'll be some stuff where shooting on the move is a piece of it, uh, and probably even some use of cover. So, in fact, I know that'll be the case, at least in the low-light curriculum that I know guys like Chuck Haggard and uh, Matt Little teach. So, um, yeah, hope to see you at the Guardian Conference. That would be a great opportunity for you to get some experience and some training on this subject we just talked about here today. And also another sponsor of today's episode is uh, CCW Safe, which is title sponsor of the Guardian Conference. Again, those links for those two sponsors, ccwsafe.com and guardianconference.com. And that's all I got to say for today. So, uh, Jacob, any last words? I'm good. Awesome. 
Folks, thanks for being here with us today. Take care. And until next time, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Mm -hmm.